Morning, church. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18, please, and keep that open. We're going to be in that most of the morning together, as well as a trek into the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And while you're opening your Bibles, if you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. I'm one of the ministers, and we're very grateful that you're with us. Uh, You're joining us at the tail end of a series of sermons I'll explain in a moment. But what I really want to heighten our hearts for is I want to tell you that currently while we're in here, there is a church service going on down at Victory Center called Hope City Church, and you all help make that happen, and we celebrate that right now. And so what you just did a few moments ago in giving your tithes and offerings for the kingdom, I want you to know it's making a difference. And even this Sunday, uh, we were able to uh, hopefully have over 300 people down there serving the community, inviting people to know Jesus better. And so thank you for that contribution and for your hard work uh, to allow us to be able to partner with Hope City in planning that church. Now, if you are visiting, we are in this series that we've been doing now. This is sixth week. We've been looking at the book of Revelation, the Revelation of John. And our concern about the book of Revelation is it's too often used today by churches to develop a calendar on how to predict when the end is going to come. And that is not the intention of the Revelation as given. Uh, John was given this vision by God called a prophecy, but you have to remember the word prophecy does not always mean prediction. It means, it can mean a revelation, a revealing of a truth. And John receives this revealing of a truth, and he's told to send it to the seven churches of Asia. Now, these weren't figurative churches. These were real churches with real people living in real time. So the revelation that John received, he gave to these churches. And when they read that revelation, they were not looking at it as a prediction of what would happen 2,000 years later. They understood that letter to be an encouragement to them in their everyday. So it's important for us to interpret revelation in the context that the original audience would have. And there is some vision of the future, but it's really about the now. So what we decided to do was take the commands found within this letter, the things that the early Christians would have grabbed onto and to look at them. We're going to focus over these weeks on eight of them. And in this study of these eight imperatives, these verbs, and in grammar and syntax, an imperative is a command. Uh, I, I like to call it a bossy word. Sit down, eat that, don't, please do this now. Those are commands, those are imperatives. So we looked at what Jesus told John to do and told the churches to do. These are things that are commands and we've been focusing on them. So as you join us, let me tell you where we've been. The first command we looked at was to keep or guard, depending on your translation, to keep or guard the words that God was giving. This revelation was given to John, and he told John, I want you to remember what I tell you, I want you to write it down, and I want you to deliver it to people so they understand that I'm in control. In week two, we looked at the command to come and see. And this is where God pulls back the curtain to John, and he says, I want you to see behind the scenes that worship is going on in heaven, that I'm in control, that Jesus is the one sent to save the earth. And that vision allowed the early church to understand that even when it looked like the world was caving in around them, God would rebuild it. Week three, we looked at the command to repent. And John told the people over and over in the, in the revelation, repent of the errors of your ways and follow the Lord faithfully. Repentance doesn't mean I feel sorry. And one of the things we talked about with repentance is many of us say we made mistakes and we won't repent of sin. There's a difference between a mistake and a sin. Mistake is accidental. Sin is intentional. And if I really want to repent, I need to repent of my sin, not my mistakes. In week four, uh, Dr. Tom Lawson preached to us on worship, who we worship, 
what it means to understand all that God's revealing about himself, how we listen to the word of God and hear the voice of God. Then in week five, last week, we looked at being faithful. And being faithful is believing that God is worth it. Believing faithful, or being faithful rather, is believing that what God says about how to live this life is the way we all ought to live. It's trusting that the one who's been so good to us can make extraordinary demands of us and see us through. Today, as you can see behind the screen behind me, our command is to come out. It can also be interpreted as come away from. It's found 14 times in the Revelation. What's unique about this command is, in the past I've had to say, well, this is what it means, but in the book of Revelation, it means specifically this. I don't have to do that here this morning. To come out or to come away from means in Revelation what it means when he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to come out of your father's land and go with me. And what's important for us to remember is it isn't how we come out, but from where we come from. Let me restate that. There's no method for coming out in Scripture. There's examples of what people did to leave something. The best way to understand this command is what a parent or a babysitter or someone guarding little children is what you might say to them if you would see a toddler heading toward the edge of a pool or you would see a a child wandering out toward the, the street with cars on it. You might say, hey, come away from there. Come away from that edge. That's not safe for you. It's better for you to be over here with me than it is to be where you're at right now. And that's what it means in the Revelation when God says to John, tell the churches, get away from that. Come away from that. Does that make sense? Shake your head. Okay, I got a yes. I love third hour. You are all awake by now. Okay, first hour, I just get stares. This is awesome. So to come away from or to come out of is interesting because it's God's beckon. Remember, faithfulness is based on who we know God to be. Coming out is running to the Father. It's coming to Jesus and going away from the things that will hinder us. In in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, in the New Living Translation, which I like what it does, and I'll show you the difference. It says, Then I heard another voice calling from heaven, Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins, or you will be punished with her. Now, in the NIV, it says, come away from her or you will receive her plagues. And so I don't know how to do this in proper grammar. I tried first hour and made a fool of myself, so I'll just admit I'm a fool now. We have to understand who her is. When you you read this, you may look at it and go, well, it's her. You know, it's just one of them. No, it's specifically her is Babylon. It's the great city. And the power of the word Babylon in Scripture It's an immense power. It represents worldly kingdoms, dark forces, those things that that dilute God in the eyes of the people and raise themselves up above him. It's depicted as a prostitute in one place and a great city of power in another. So remember, it's not how you come out of Babylon. It's where you go when you leave Babylon. This is the imperative. It's, this image of Babylon is found in Revelation 14, 16, 17, and 18. John's audience would have known when the word Babylon was used, John's audience would have seen it as Rome. We see it as something completely different because our, our entire world is more highly connected. That we under, I, I was told that in World War II, when forces landed on beaches, that it could sometimes be up to 48 hours before anybody back in the States knew what took place. It's not 48 seconds in our world. Somebody's tweeting it, posting it on Facebook, or calling into CNN. It's right there. We live in a connected world. 
So when we're called out of Babylon, it's not a location. It's not just one governmental system. It's any system, any thought process, or any power that dilutes who God is to make themselves more powerful. And in this, we are told, get away from her. Run away. Get out. Come away, or you will receive the punishment that she receives. Now, you know, one of the things, and I only say this because I'm not really worried about it, but I need to be aware of it, and I like to sometimes pop some balloons that don't need to fly. This is the kind of sermon many of you come to church expecting to hear. He's going to rant and rave, get all red-faced, and stomp on stage for 30 minutes and tell us how evil the world is. Let me tell you what I'm going to tell you this morning. The world's evil. Okay, are we good? Because that's biblically true, whether we want to hear it or not. And if that plays into the stereotype, God bless Because the warning of revelation is not my idea. It's the word of truth that comes from God. If you're in bed with the world, you're going to die of her disease. Come out of that bedroom and walk into a new kingdom. This is what revelation calls us to do. And it's not, it's funny that it's really not inconsistent with other scriptures. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 51 when the Old Testament prophet talks about the power of Babylon. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore they have now gone mad. Babylon will suddenly fall and be broken, wail over her. We would have healed Babylon, but she cannot be healed. Let us leave her and each go to his own land, for her judgment reaches to the skies, it rises as high as the clouds. Even in the Old Testament, the image of Babylon was a corrupt system that used people and would one day be destroyed. And John is telling the church, come out of Babylon before it collapses all around you, or probably collapses on you. And notice the cup imagery. I'm hard-pressed not to hear the image when Jesus looked at his disciples and said, can you drink the cup of which I drink? And they said, yeah, because his was a cup of suffering. Babylon's is a cup of of wine, and it makes you drunk, and it eases your pain. And listen to me clearly. The book of Revelation is nothing more if it's not a comparison between the battle of Babylon versus Jerusalem. That the great city of the new king versus the evil city of the dark forces. It's a battle between those two great cities. And the word Babylon means that in all of Scripture, and Jerusalem means the new city of a new king in these scriptures. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The reason we come out is to enter into the holiness that only Jesus can give us. And in the context of this, what is the great tribulation? There's a lot of speculation about a tribulation yet to come, but I have to ask you this morning, what was the tribulation that the people of John's day who got this letter were facing? Because they weren't waiting for a tribulation 3,000 years from then. They were in the middle of it. What is the great tribulation? It's what the harlot does to those who try to leave her bed. It's the attack on purity. It's the attack on truth. It's the attack on God being enough. And the great tribulation throughout the churches, the persecution on those who believe that God is right even when the world doesn't like it. In chapters 12 through 18 of Revelation, John has this image of these attacks against God, these forces that rise up against our new king, Jesus, and what takes place because of it. In chapter 12, there's a dragon that arises. This dragon sees this pregnant woman about to give birth, 
And the dragon's intent is to go in and devour the child when it's born. And yet the mother delivers the baby and it says the baby is swept away and then the dragon begins to persecute and harass and try to kill the mother. Doesn't that harken back to Christmas time when Herod was trying to kill the two-year-old boys and Joseph was told in a dream to take his son to Egypt? The child was whisked away to safety and then what did the dragon do? He began to attack those who believed in the child. We've seen this story before. I have friends who actually put a little red dragon in their nativity scenes at Christmas to be reminded that this gift of Jesus wasn't just this little precious thing in a manger. It was fought for throughout all eternity, and the battle rages on. In chapter uh, 13, there are two beasts that arise, one out of the sea and one out of the land, and they attack the believers in the child, and they pursue them. And then there's a false prophet that arises and calls the entire world to worship the beast, to bow down to the beast and to pay credit to them. In chapter 17, this prostitute arises and she seduces the world and she invites the world to sleep with her. And if they give her their souls, she will give them momentary and fleeting pleasure. You see, Revelation is a contrast between two cities. The power and darkness of Babylon or the beauty and purity of Jerusalem. You see, one king or one kingdom promises power, comfort, and prosperity, and it's not the one you're thinking. Babylon promises that it'll make you feel good, look good, and bring you great comfort. The kingdom of Jerusalem under our new King Jesus promises us suffering for the truth. And for that suffering for the truth, we will bring life into dark and dead places. So our world laughs that I would dare stand up and say that it is better to choose suffering than comfort and ease. But I'm here to tell you, tell, tell you that. You see, leaving the harlot makes no sense because at least you feel something. But stepping into faith and trusting the king will allow you to feel everything for eternity. So as we've done in this series, what's a good example of what it means to come out or come away from the world? I'd like to take you to my favorite passage in all of the Old uh, Old Testament. And just simply call it Four Hebrew Slaves. I'm going to tell you the story of four boys who were taken capture and they were taken into, dare you guess, Babylon? Because what would happen back in those days is when great nations would conquer other nations, they would go in and they would take out the healthy, intelligent, vibrant youth from that culture. They would get them between the ages of 8 and 16 and they would bring them into their culture and they would make them apprentices to the leaders and they would bring the best minds and the best athletic ability and the best of the best. The rest of them they would slaughter. But they would take the best of the best. And it says in Daniel chapter 1 verse 6, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah were four of the young men chosen. These were four believers in God who were taken captive. Very likely, their families were all killed in the captivity. And the reason the Babylonians would do this is it would eliminate the, the best parts of the nation that they, if the nation ever tried to reform, the best minds, the best talent, the best abilities would all be gone. In fact, if you study World War II history, that's exactly what Germany did with the Jews. It took out their doctors and lawyers and their scholars. It took them and it, it delineated their strength. And so you have this moment where these boys were brought in. And there's a couple of stories, and you may not know them, maybe you may. Just let me show you. It's in Daniel chapter 1 through 4, if you really want to read through this on your own. But there's this engagement where the king lays out this wonderful spread of wine and food for these young boys. He's trying to win their hearts with his culture. 
And Daniel and the three others decide at that moment that they're not going to eat that food because God asked them not to eat these kinds of food. So to honor God, they choose not to. Well, they're told you have to do what the king says. And Daniel steps up and says this. He says, I want to honor my God. Give me 10 days. Let me eat my diet for 10 days. And at the end of that 10 days, if I'm in weaker condition or lesser than the other slaves, then I will eat your food. At the end of 10 days, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Babylonian names, all four of these were healthier than those who ate the king's diet. Keep that in mind. That's going to come back in just a few minutes to show us how, how do we come out and how do we do that well. A couple chapters later, in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar gets in his pompousness. He decides to build a statue that's made of gold, and it's 90 feet tall. He sets it outside the city in an open plain so that everybody in town can see this 90-foot idol. He gets his orchestra together, and he says, when they play the music, everybody in this country will bow, drop down, and bow to that, that God. So they do a trial run. The orchestra swells, the sounds are made, everybody drops to their knees but three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when everyone's bowing and you're standing, you're going to be noticed. So they run to King Nebuchadnezzar and they said, these three Jewish slaves that you are feeding and taking care of and kept them alive, they won't bow to your God. So Nebuchadnezzar brings them in. In Daniel 3.15, these are his words. Now when you hear the sound of the music... If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That's not a line in the sand. That's a line in concrete. And he says, we're going to try this one more time. I'm going to cue the band. You're going to cue your knees. And if you don't hit your knees, you're going to face my wrath. And Nebuchadnezzar was not one to be toyed with. He was never told no, which is part of his problem. Verse 16. Now, listen. I don't want you to picture like he-men mighty warriors here. These are Jewish boys who have lost their family. They've lost their land. They're living in this foreign culture. I'm going to guess they want to live. I don't think they're just these superheroes. They go, no, I'm just too tough. I'm Chuck Norris. I'll make it work. This isn't what they're doing. These are boys. And they say to him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Strike one. We don't have to answer to you. (laughs) Good one. Verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Strike two. They look at the king and say, we're betting our God's bigger than you. But verse 18 is one of my favorite parts of the story. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Strike three. I'd rather die than worship something that's not real. So what they've said is, now we're going to do it our way. And when the entire world bows and you're standing up, you're going to be noticed. So Nebuchadnezzar, who's really a creepy dude, Because not only does he have a fire pit to burn people in who don't please him. And you have to understand, the reason they had this big furnace, they called it, where they would throw bodies in it, was because the sound of the torment, the smell of the flesh, would remind everybody in the area, don't do that. 
It's like why the Romans put crosses along the roads. They didn't have a cross field. The crosses were on the roadside. So when people walked down and saw a guy or a woman suffering on a cross, they would walk by and go, don't mess with Rome. If you mess with Rome, they torture you in front of everybody so you'll know not to mess with Rome. And Nebuchadnezzar had built this furnace, and this is the part that wears me out. He had a seat where he could see into it. And that's going to play into this in just a moment. So he throws them in the fire. And it says that the soldiers bound their hands and feet to throw them in the fire, like the fire wouldn't be enough. And because it was seven times hotter than it normally was, when they opened it up to throw the boys in, it says that the flames came out and licked them. The heat was so intense, it killed the soldiers delivering the boys. And so the boys are thrown into the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar calls one of his people over and he goes, how many did we throw in? I don't know if he thought like maybe an extra soldier fell in. But he said, how many did we throw in? And the guy said, you threw in three, sir. And he said, there are four down there and one of them looks like the Son of God. Interesting. How would he know what the Son of God looked like? Oh, that's a big question, isn't it? He just looked down. Well, first of all, I think the guy was really cool, to be honest. (laughs) I think Jesus was down there hanging on a rock going, yo, I'm right here. In fact, could you turn it up a little bit? It's cool. Maybe, I'm estimating. But he says it's the son of God. Well, let me tell you why. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had these dreams that he couldn't interpret. And he was troubled by these dreams. And none of his wise men could interpret his dreams. So somebody said, hey, there's this Daniel guy who serves God. And he has insight. He has wisdom. Much like Joseph did. So they called Daniel in. Daniel interprets the dream spot on. And in chapter 2, verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar says, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. And it wasn't until he pressed God's button and he saw God in the fire with those three boys that he remembered, yeah, Daniel's God's a little different than what I thought. And when he looked in the fire, he saw him. So what does this look like? What does this command look like in our lives? I've told you what it means theologically. I've showed you what it means in other biblical stories. What does it look like for you and I? Well, I think if we do what those four Hebrew boys do, we prepare ourselves well. First of all, they committed themselves to holiness in the midst of a wicked culture. Let me be crystal clear. If you don't think you're living in Babylon, you are strangely mistaken. We live in Babylon today in our culture. I love being America. I don't like how America respects God. I don't like how we talk about his truth as if it's old-timey. I don't like the fact that if you actually stand up and believe that the Bible can be taken for its truth and lived out and everyone should respect that, that you're being mocked and really close to being prosecuted. But I love my country. And I love what it can be. And I beg you, join me. I pray every day that we will repent, fall on our knees, and honor the one true king. And then God can do amazing things. But in the midst of all of this, look at what Daniel did. When it came to the food, it says in chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Here's what I noticed about this. Even when Daniel was being disobedient, He did it respectfully. I have read my Bible multiple times in my life, and here's the one thing I've concluded. Nowhere in Scripture are Christians called to be obnoxious. Some of us are more bold on our bumper stickers than we are face-to-face. And yet some of us, 
will bow when the world bows because we don't want to get caught standing up. And you are going to have to make a choice. We use this illustration. You try to keep one foot in the world, you can't put any real part of you in the kingdom. You can't dip your toe in once a week to see how it's going on the other side. We are called to make a choice. When the world stands, we bow. And when the world bows, we stand. And this is what we've been called to do. And Daniel was respectful. He was submissive to his leaders. But he said, listen, I want to show you God's ways. I don't want to say that you're going to hell because you don't do it. I want to show you what it looks like to live under God's rule. And 10 days later, the doctors examined the four Hebrew boys and said, you know what? This God thing makes sense. Church, if we do God's things, God's ways, there will be victory. If we do man's things, man's ways, there will be death. So, they chose holiness. And what I love about it is, there were some young men living in that age. And they they would grow up, Ezra, Nehemiah. And they would grow up to lead Israel back to Jerusalem. Because of the example of four Hebrew boys who took a stand when everybody else sat. Second thing they did. They committed themselves to seeking after God instead of seeking their own way. And this is another important delineation for many of us in how to live our lives. They didn't decide what God wanted them to do. They let God show them what he wanted them to do. They could have gone into Babylon and said, I could have prime rib and wine, or I could eat these vegetables and whole grain breads. I know what I would naturally choose. But they said, God told us not to eat these foods, but to remain set apart from the world and to eat these foods instead. They chose what God asked them to do, not what made sense in their own minds and in their own context. Now, if you knew that God let you be taken from your family and most of your family killed, you lost all your land, all your possessions, and you're a slave, and you have a chance at prime rib and wine, most of us would go, well, I think I deserve that. And they decided that God deserved what he wanted before they ever took what they wanted. It's a choice we get to make. And I'll show you where this ability came from just one example of many in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 9, Daniel said, So I turned to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God. Listen, the book of Daniel is as much about prayer as it is about prophecy. The reason these four boys could stand up when the world bowed was they were willing to seek what God wanted instead of what they wanted. And you you need to know this. It is impossible to live a holy life without spending time every day asking your king what he would like you to do today. Because left to our own agenda, we will serve our kingdom and not his. It is about prayer and seeking the will of God and waiting and listening and carving time out from all of the noise to open your ears and hear the words of God as delivered to you. When Nebuchadnezzar saw that the the boys in the furnace weren't harmed, and the Bible even alludes to the fact when they came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. I can't burn a four-inch brush pile in my yard and walk in the house without my wife going, take those clothes off in the garage. You smell like a fire. These boys were in the flames, came out. God so protected them. They came out, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar said to them. Blessed be your God, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. 
and yielded their bodies that they may not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar saw that he thought he was making a royal statement, and instead God made the real royal statement. That was that God reigns and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. And one day, the revelation tells us that all those who have power will have none, and the one who has real power will come back in love and restore everything that's been lost. So they were set apart to God, and they sought after God, and lastly, they committed themselves to die trusting God rather than living for a lie. They would would rather die trusting the Lord than live in a lie that they knew was not going to come together. They They had faith in the faithfulness of God because they said to the king, God is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't, and I want to pause there. Listen, for some of us, God won't save us from the fire. He'll save us in the fire. For some of us, he won't save us from going in the lion's den, but he will close the mouth of the lions. If you want to have a comfortable, prosperous life with no problems, and you feel good about yourself and what's accomplishing, then go to the city of Babylon. Because at least for a moment, they'll offer you that. But in the city of Jerusalem with the new king, he doesn't offer us comfort. He offers us his presence. And even in the fire... God's presence is greater than standing outside of it. And this is the truth that we learn from four Hebrew boys under great duress. So we go back to Revelation where I started. Come away from there. It's dangerous. I want you to look with me. If you close your Bibles, please reopen them to Revelation 18, verse 9. This is one of those passages that to understand the impact that Revelation would have had on John's audience, this is one of those passages I would encourage you to read with regularity. Because if you want to silence the voice of the prostitute calling you back to bed, you need to hear Revelation 18, where John tells us what the cost of being a partner with her is. When the kings of the earth, who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning... They will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. Notice the reference here. John says that all of those that had given themselves to Babylon and its supposed power, within one hour, the great city was leveled and burnt to the ground, and everything that they had invested their lives in was gone. He goes on to share. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Verse 11 is amazing. She's using them and they're using her. And all of it's lost. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearl, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, Articles of every kind of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, bodies and souls of men. Listen to the word of God. The cultures of Babylon don't want your money, they want your soul. Babylon takes your soul, Jesus gives it back. Come away from her. You're losing what's most important and will never get it back. 
Verse 14, they will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. That's a powerful passage you either believe, and if you don't, I think you're drunk with the wine of Babylon. You're believing that a government can save you. An army can save you. Your wealth can save you. Your education can save you. Your prosperity can save you. I'm here to tell you, I believe what the word of God says. Only Jesus Christ can save me. And the first thing he needs to save me from is not Babylon. He needs to save me from me. And when I give myself to him and trust him, then he will show me that the things that I'm investing my life in of this world, I need to get my foot out of the world and I need to be absolutely 100% in his kingdom because that is all going to end and this never will. So that's why he said, hey, Mark, come away from there. You're going to get hurt. And an obedient child says, okay. Because he's not calling us into religion. He's calling us home. God is saying, come to me. I'm faithful and true. Jesus is the one who's going to come. And I love this part about the scripture. You don't find anywhere in the Bible that it says when Jesus and Satan come together, they're going to have a great battle. That's a myth. You know what the Bible says? Jesus is going to come back, Satan's going to shut up, and it's over. It's like a four-year-old taking on an MMA fighter. It's a lot of talk when the guy's not in the room. But the minute the real authority and power comes back, Babylon is destroyed in an hour and it's all fallen apart and King Jesus reigns and that's why we're talking about this. Come away from there, it, you're going to get hurt. And when it, when it collapses, it'll collapse on you. Jesus said, come to me, I'm going to bring a brand new city and you're going to reign with, it, with me in it. And I'm going to dry every tear and wipe every eye and... I'm going to fix everything that's been broken and the Garden of Eden is going to grow again and we're all going to serve and work and love and it's not going to be a big church service with 90 years of sermons, praise Jesus. It's going to be every one of us living out our giftedness to the glory of God. All because of what Jesus did. That's why God says, hey, come, come out of there. You're going to get hurt. So the question of the morning is, do you trust him? Babylon wants your soul. Jesus wants to give it back. If I'm you, I'd give my soul to Jesus. I'm betting my life on it. How about you? It's all about what he does and the hope in that. Let's stand together and sing.